words in my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good to have you here. Karen, did you read that whole gospel without your microphone going out? Wow. We have had a... Um, what do you call it when you get rid of a demon? I forget the word. Deliverance. There you go. We had a deliverance. And I want to thank you all for being here at the right time today. This is good. We had a rush about quarter to nine at the eight o'clock service, but that was, that was fine. I want to talk to you this morning about this reading from Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Big idea is this is a very simple, it's the gospel today. I mean, he's all about this. He yeah, big ideas. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in these verses, he uses eight words to sort of show us the gospel. You were, but God, by grace, through faith. You were, but God, by grace, through faith. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are pretty famous verses, and they read as follows. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. So the idea of it's grace, it's faith, it's not what we do, it's not works. And so people will quote that all the time. What they don't quote as often is verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, which weren't read, but I'll go ahead and do that. He writes and says, and you uh, he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which, you were, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Kind of sets up where we were before we came to faith. And in those verses, he's really saying the sinner is dead and actually lacks the ability, the ability to reach out to God. The sinner is deceived, depraved, if you will, by his sins. He lacks the desire to believe. And... He also says the sinner is doomed unless something happens. He's been condemned and judged by his sins. We all know people like this. They're not depraved. They're not bad people. They're just indifferent to the gospel. They don't care. It does, it's not important to them. These things that God has revealed to us through his word, through his son, these things that matter for eternity, not just now, a lot of people say, well, I, well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad that works for you. Or I'll get to that someday, but right now I'm busy with, with kids and work and life, and I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Well, we don't know how much more time we've got. And this is for all the marbles. It really is. It really is. I mean, sometimes people think people have everything you, you'd, you'd shoot for. How many of you would like to be Prince Harry and Meghan Markle today? Would you like to be them? But they have millions of dollars and yachts and planes and houses 
their neighborhood would go for like 15 million. I mean, who wouldn't want that? But what's on the other side of that? Misery, unhappiness, disappointment, disconnect, all that stuff that goes with it. You know, so sometimes what the world has to offer is not really what you want. But God, these are Kathy's two favorite words in the Bible. But God, who was rich in mercy and of great love with which he loved us. Now, if you take a moment to think about what Paul is saying here, he mentions the fact that there is God is rich in mercy. Two words there, rich in mercy. The rich refers to an overabundance that which is without measure, unlimited. And this characteristic suggests that God possesses an overabundant, measureless, and unlimited quantity of mercy. There's no end to the mercy that he shows for us. Mercy refers to goodness or kindness toward the miserable and the afflicted, coupled with a desire to help them. You have three things, justice, mercy, and grace, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So I use this example. A lot of you have heard it before. Some of you haven't. A father says to his son, if I ever hear you that you back-talk your mother, you're going to get five squats with a bell. So he comes home, and the mother says, well, he did it. Father says, upstairs. Kid gets on the bed. The belt comes out. Whack, whack, whack. Belt goes back in, the father goes downstairs. About a half an hour later, he calls his son down, and he says, you want to get some ice cream? Kid is totally confused. Uh, okay. And off they go and get the ice cream. And the father says, justice is getting what you deserve, five swats. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, three swats. The ice cream is grace getting what you don't deserve. God gives us, shows us mercy, not giving us what we deserve, and grace by giving us what we don't deserve through his mercy and his love. What makes the, the mercy of God so amazing is the object of this love, mercy, and grace, and that's says, with which he loved us. And the us refers to those who are redeemed from among the lost. It speaks of the us who did not love him. It speaks of the us who lived in constant rebellion against God's word, his will and his ways. It speaks of the us who deserved his judgment and eternal damnation. And it speaks of the us who hated him and loved our sins. It speaks of the us who turned away from him in open, unrestrained Rebellion. And despite of all this, he loved us and gives us an opportunity to be reconciled with him through his Father, through him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul tells us in 8 and 9, which I read earlier, that no one will ever be saved by works they perform, and regardless of how holy those works may appear or how many works they perform, it isn't about what you do. I can't do anything. to reconcile myself with God. This flies in the face of thousands of years of human thinking, effort, and religious activity. Man has always felt that he had to have a part in his salvation. Thus, man has developed thousands of competing religions that rely on good works, self-sacrifice, 
or self-righteousness to save the practitioner of that religion. That's why the ancient Canaanites offered their children to Molech. And so they would have a statue of Molech with his arms like this. It was metal. And they would heat it up, hot as you can get it, and they would lay the child in the arms of Molech and, and sacrifice their children. That's why the ancient Phoenicians sacrificed their sexual purity to the god of Baal and the goddess of Ashtoreth. That's why so many ancient cultures worship nature. The common denominator in all these and all other man-made religions is works. We need to do something ourselves in order to achieve the desired outcome. A leading manufacturing company developed a new cake mix that required only water to be added. Tests were run, surveys were made, and the cake mix was found to be of superior quality to the other mixes. Avail uh, it tasted good, it was easy to make, easy to use, and it made a moist, tender cake. The company spent large sums of money on an advertising campaign and then released the cake mix to the general market, but very few people bought the new cake mix. The company then spent more money on a survey to find out why the cake mix did not sell. Based on the results of the survey, the company recalled the mix, reworked the formula, and released the revised cake mix. The new cake mix required that you add not only water, but also an egg. It sold like hotcakes and is now a leading product in the field. You see, the first cake mix was just too simple to be believable. People would not accept it. The same is true of salvation by grace. It can't be that easy. If you said in order to be reconciled with God, you had to crawl up a mountain on your hands and knees, people would say, I can do that because it's such a wonderful uh, payoff. And we think if we do something hard and do it ourselves, then that's how we get the reward. And God says, no, no, I paid the price for you. You don't have to do anything but Recognize your, your condition as a sinner. Repent of those sins. Turn to me and come to faith and believe in me. Paul says salvation comes to us through faith. The question is, what is faith? Faith refers to a, refers to a conviction of truth of something, belief. Saving faith is simply coming to the place where one believes with absolute conviction that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. For example, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, some people say that they can't believe in Jesus. They've never seen him. Can't believe in Jesus because they don't know it's absolutely true. But I think it's true and safe to say that every day of our lives is an act of faith in one way or another. We eat our food having faith that it is not contaminated. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to a restaurant and they put food in front of me, I don't go to the kitchen and check their sanitation and their preparation area. I don't do an inspection of the people who made my lunch or my dinner or my breakfast, all right? I don't do that. I just eat it, right? We drink water believing by faith that it's safe to drink. You turn on the tap, you take the water, you buy a bottle of water, you unscrew the top, and you just drink it. Do you ever wonder where it came from or if it's, if it's okay? Now, if you're in Africa, it's a different story. And you'll see all these guys riding around, young kids too, 
going up to this well in the middle of the town, and they have these five-gallon yellow plastic containers, and they, they fill it with water, and then they have to take it home and boil it because it's not safe to drink. But they know that. We just drink it. We take the medicine the doctor prescribes by faith, not knowing all the side effects or where, whether it will cure us or kill us. Does anybody here take medicine? Anybody here take a pill? Anything? What do you know about it? What you know about it is it got prescribed by the doctor, and you went to the pharmacy, and they filled the order, and now you take it as prescribed. Do you know whether or not it's counteracting some other medicine you're taking? No, you don't. We take it on faith, right? Do you prescribe medications, doctor? Do you tell people what it is they're taking and what it's going to do? Okay, good. Keep it up. We get on a plane and we don't ask to check the pilot's qualifications or the maintenance record of the aircraft. I never have. I just trust that the guy knows what he's doing and the plane is safe to fly. You get in your car, you turn the key, or you push the button. How many of you get to push a button? Oh, man. You? You're a button pusher on a car? Really? Wow. Well, you're almost 65, so I guess you're good to go. Man, oh, man. But you push the button or you turn the key, you just, by faith, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start. It's always started before. Even the act of sitting down. How many of you checked the chair when you sat down to make sure that all four of those legs were securely fastened to the seat? None of you. Salvation comes simply when a lost sinner takes God at his word, repents of their sin, and believes what the Bible says about Jesus. God says he was born of a virgin. I believe that. God says he is the sinless son of God. I believe that. God says he died on a cross to pay for the sins of the sinner. Mine. I believe that. God says he rose again from the dead, and I believe that. God says he ascended back to heaven. I believe that. And God says he's coming again to get his people. I believe that, but I don't know when, and I don't know how, and I don't know what it will look like. Now, a lot of people have very strong opinions about that and say that they've unlocked the secret of how this is all going to work with when he comes back and what it'll look like and what happens to people that died before and going up and coming back and all the rest of it. I don't know. I have no idea. I just know he's coming back. And I know at some point I'm going with him. You know, I was telling a story this morning about a, we were doing a uh, cookout for the Grace School from my Rotary Club many years ago over at Grace Church, and some pastor in the, in the club came into my office, and he's looking at my library, and he says, so, pre-trib or post-trib? I said, don't know, don't care. He never talked to me again. Not only did I not have the right answer, I was indifferent to the question. And he doesn't know either. He's just locked into his thought process, okay? But I know he's coming back, and I know his people are going to go with him. God says that anyone who believes in Jesus will be eternally saved. That 
I believe, as well. And that and not works is what saves the soul. Kind of sounds like the creed. In the year 1829, a Philadelphia man named George Wilson, true story, by the way, robbed the U.S. mails, killing someone in the process. Wilson was arrested, brought to trial, found guilty, and sentenced to be hanged. Some friends intervened on his behalf and were finally able to obtain a pardon for him from President Andrew Jackson. But when he was informed of this, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. The sheriff was unwilling to enact the sentence, for how could he hang a pardoned man? An appeal was sent to President Jackson. The perplexed president turned to the United States Supreme Court to decide the case. Chief Justice Marshall ruled that a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends on its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that a person under the sentence of death would refuse to pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. So George Wilson was executed, although his pardon lay on the sheriff's desk. God has made an offer of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and salvation to you and to me. And to receive that offer and believe in Jesus is to be eternally saved. It's to go to heaven when you leave this earth. I do, a, I do a demonstration of the gospel every funeral I do, almost every funeral. Some of you have seen that. Maybe a lot of you have. I'm going to do that today. I need Bernardo. I need Jordan. And I need Justin. Come on up. Just stand, stand here next to each other and face the audience, the, the congregation. Oh, good. You've actually lined up in the proper order. We'll have God the Father. We'll have Jesus. And we'll have the miserable sinner. And he will tell you, yes, this is my... This is my identity. This is who I really am. Huh? You did it once before. Huh? You Okay, so he's in Hawaii. He does a funeral. So he did this when he was impersonating me. Oh, I told you you could do it. That's right. I forgot. Miserable sinner, God the Father. All right. When God the Father looks at Mr. Me, you, Scott and Sherry, and even Regina, sweet, lovable Regina. He sees this person as unholy, unrighteous, and unacceptable because in yourself you are. At some point, I remember um, in 1979, I think, we started going back to church. And actually, we started going to church when we had Liam. We hadn't gone to church in a long, long time, but then we had Liam. And I said, well, now we have to go to church, to Kathy. And she said, what? What? Huh? I said, it's a rule. It's the rule. You go to church when you have kids. That's how it is. I only have one requirement for the church. It has to be dead. What? It has to be dead. I don't want to ask. Uh, want them asking me for anything. We found it. St. Francis Episcopal in Virginia Beach, Virginia. That's good. Deader than a doornail, but I was a happy camper. 
I was going to church. I was saying my prayers. I was even starting to read the Bible. I was doing all kinds of good things. I had no clue what I was doing. But I thought it would make God like me. And the problem is God says, all of your good works are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy and righteous God. So says Isaiah. And that's like they just fall right in front of you, you know. And to make matters worse, the filthy rags that he talks about are menstrual cloths. That gives you an idea of how wonderful they are in the sight of God when you do it for yourself. But to the side of everybody's life stands Jesus. When I was 33, I asked Jesus to step between me and the Father. So now when the Father looks at Bernardo or me or anybody, he sees him as through his son, holy, righteous, acceptable. And again, it's not because of anything Bernardo did or I did. It's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's it. You recognize your, your, your condition as a sinner and that you're in need of a Savior. Jesus is the one. And now when the Father looks at Bernardo or anybody else, he sees him as holy, righteous, and acceptable, not because of anything he has done, but because of what Jesus did for him. And now you get to stand next to each other, brothers, right? God sees you. As you take on his nature, you become one, right? And that's the gospel. That's, it's really simple. It's not hard. And today is the day that we need to embrace that. Today's the day. We don't know how much time we've got left, you know. We always think we have more time. But I pray that today's the day, if you haven't done this, you would come home. Receive Christ. Come home. Amen. So now we're, the band is going to play, right? Yeah.
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ, in Christ alone. Amen. <laughs> 